Hey everybody, Pat Nembers, lead pastor at Sailorville Church with you by myself today, although that's not the way I wanted it to be. I had actually put out an invite and I may still be able to pull this off uh, of a, um, of a one, either our, in our local seminary at Faith Baptist Bible College uh, down the road here in Ankeny, uh, Iowa, or uh, possibly uh, one of my uh, friends uh, from a, a seminary where I was formerly a trustee out east. Either way, I'm hoping I can pull this off. No promises just yet. Uh, a kind of a Zoom call podcast in the future on eschatology. That is the study of the future. But for today, I just want to take a few of your uh, moments to talk about the day of the Antichrist. Now, uh, some of you who follow us uh, and uh, many of you who watch uh, because you are either uh, uh, attending a member of Sailorville Church or you watch online, uh, you know that uh, we preached on the subject of the Antichrist uh, just last Sunday. You're welcome to check that sermon out. It was called uh, uh, Satan Off of His Chain, and I gave an illustration to that end. Uh, but we were in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is really a... It's a fascinating, very intriguing passage of scripture, which gives us a little, not only some of the character of the coming Antichrist, that is the false Christ who is yet to come, uh, but uh, tells us what he actually does and describes uh, what is more famously known as the abomination uh, of desolation. Jesus referred to it. Daniel referred to the abomination of desolation. And then Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 actually describes uh, the event itself uh, when he says in verse uh, 3, let no one deceive you in any way for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. We talked about that, re that word rebellion, that it could have, uh, has different uh, interpretations. Some think it's actually a reference to the church being taken away. Others think it means exactly what the word rebe rebellion uh, uh, you know, seems to confer, which is uh, uh, that uh, something, uh, there's a revolt of some kind that takes place. And, uh, but then he says, then the man of lawlessness, this is the description of the Antichrist, man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that, and here's that actual description of the abomination of desolation so that he takes his seat in the temple of God. So that implies, more than implies, that in the future, the temple, which the Jews would more would love to be able to uh, erect another temple, uh, the Dome of the Rock is sitting in that place. I've been there a number of times myself. It's uh, the third most sacred uh, of all places to Muslims. If the Jews were to take the Dome of the Rock away and erect a temple, we'd have World War III for sure. We don't know how it's going to happen, but it's alluded to here, the temple that is, and that this, this personage, this, this Antichrist is going to go into that temple uh, and proclaim himself to be God. That is, again, what is known as the uh, abomination of desolation. And talking about the day of the Antichrist, um, uh, I, I mentioned in my sermon that <laughs> This is the very first reference I ever looked up as a very young man. I, I grabbed a Bible, dusted it off, and looked it up after, after having seen a horror movie and looked up Revelation 13, verse 18, where the Antichrist is referred to and his number, which is uh, more famously known as six, you know, 666. Uh, here's how uh, John, by the way, John tells us in 1 John and uh, 2 John, he's the only one who uses the term Antichrist. 
And, and here's, one of the, uh, here's one of the references to it. This is 1 John 2 and verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So even John, back in the first century, was assuming we were living in the final days. And he, he does something very interesting. He talks about the Antichrist, and he talks about many Antichrists. So there are a lot of people that are out there and have since John's day to the present who are really Antichrist. They are, they're not the Antichrist, but they oppose Christ. They try to... Uh, they tried to mirror him because we said it in the message that the prefix anti has two basic meanings. One is against, that's the one we normally think of. He's against the things of God. And the text here in 2 Thessalonians 2 uh, uses that connotation. The other is instead of, that is in the place of. He tries to replace Christ because you, if you're going to fool somebody, you got to look a lot like the original. In another place uh, in 2 Corinthians, we're told that uh, Satan is likened to an angel of light. Now, if I took out the word Satan in that sentence, you'd, you'd just hear angel of light, and you'd probably think positive connotation, and that's the whole point. He's an antichrist. He, that is, he tries to duplicate the things of God, just come a click away from them, and thus deceive people, uh, churches, whole regions, and eventually the world. So books... And movies have sensationalized this character, like the one that sent me home looking up the reference. And in a strange way, it's kind of, it's strangely, those things actually, in a way, help the cause, even though they themselves aren't. In the big picture, God causes people to be interested in spiritual things when these things happen. You know, so it's kind of like these people who come around every few years and predict the coming of Jesus, you know, and then they're invariably they're wrong because Acts chapter 1 verse 7 says no one knows the time. So if no one knows the time, well, guess what? No one knows the time. <laughs> but every couple of years, somebody predicts the time and, you know, they're a bunch of, you know, they're a bunch of phonies. Uh, but the fact is, every time that happens, it causes people to piques their interest. And that's because God has put this natural sense of desiring to know the future in all of us. Ecclesiastes 7, or I'm sorry, uh, 3 verse 11 says that very thing. It says that God has set eternity in the hearts of people. That's the reason why we naturally want to know about the future. And we certainly want to know about this character who's coming. And of course, all of his forerunners, which are called Antichrist, uh, plural. But if we believe the Bible, if we really do believe the Bible to be the Word of God, and I do, I really believe in the, I, I literally believe this book, okay? I don't wouldn'tly believe this book. That is when it gives figures of speech. I take them as figures of speech. But the book is the literal Word of God, and that's the way we preach it at Sailorville Church. And if I believe it, and I'm assuming many of you watching this podcast will agree with me, then we have to take this character very, very seriously. Uh, because he is coming. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are going to encounter this individual eventually. And I've said this from the pulpit a number of times over the last few weeks. Uh, even though I can't predict the time, I don't know when Jesus is coming. Everything about the here and now tells me it's soon. I'm believing it. And as I said at the very end of my message, if I live to be 110, and I don't think I want to live to be 110, but if I did, I want to believe up to the very end Jesus is coming back at any time. 
So the Antichrist is actually referred to a number of times in the Old Testament and particularly in the book of Daniel. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, I'm just going to give you a reference. We're not going to study the text here. And I'm not going to take too much of your time here today on this. But Daniel 9 verses 24 through 27 speaks of this covenant that this individual is going to make with the nation of Israel. He is the Antichrist. He's the one referred to. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus alludes to Daniel. And in fact, he says it was written by Daniel in this passage. I'll, in fact, I'll even go there in just a second and show you what I mean. Uh, telling us that the abomination of desolation was actually referred to in Daniel chapter 9. Again, verses 24 through 27. He, uh, he makes a covenant in Israel and then he breaks the covenant through uh, the means of the abomination of uh, desolation. Here's how Jesus put it in Matthew chapter 24. The, the subject here is the end times. His disciples have come to him. Uh, they want to know when the end is coming. And uh, Jesus starts talking about signs and all of these things that are going to be to amplify uh, wars, rumors of wars, famines, plagues, all of these things, uh, earthquakes in various places. He calls them the beginning of birth pains in verse 8 of chapter 24. Then he talks about the tribulation which will take place at that point. Here's what it says in verse 15. Verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation, there's that term, and we're talking about the day of the Antichrist, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's a direct uh, that makes a direct line to Daniel chapter 9. In the holy place, uh, let the reader understand. That's interesting that Jesus said that parenthetically. Then let those who are in Judea, uh, Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in the house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back uh, to take his cloak. And alas, for the women who are pregnant in those days and nursing infants in those days, pray. And then this is a very interesting little uh, phrase. And you need to, especially those of you who look at cha uh, Matthew chapter 24 and you think some of this stuff is going to be taking place during our time. He says this, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. I don't know about you, I'm not a Jew. I have great respect for the Jews. Salvation is of the Jews. Salvation came from the Jews. Jesus said that in John 4. But Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. And I don't keep the Sabbath. I, 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 I should put it differently. I do keep the Sabbath. I keep, I keep it through Jesus. I trusted him. He is my rest, okay? But here Jesus says, pray that it won't be on the Sabbath. The only people who would be worried about that would be Jews. Okay, so this is, has a very, Jew, very, very strong Jewish flavor. But without getting into the weeds, again, we're talking about the day of the Antichrist when he comes because this is, going, this is when all, literal, all hell breaks loose. I told you that in Daniel 9, the Antichrist is referred to, but um, there is a foreshadowing of the Antichrist that took place in, uh, in 168 B.C., he is alluded to in Daniel 11, if you want to write references down. In, it's like verses 20 through 23. I'm not going to read them, but you can just write those references down. And the character there, though not named in Daniel 11, he's clearly uh, known in time as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphany just means like magnificent one, illustrious one, 
Uh, you know, these kings would give themselves <laughs> give themselves great names for themselves, you know, because of their, you know, they're all egomaniacs, you know. So anyway, he was a, he was a Greek king over the area of, of Syria. He came from a line of, of Antiochus's, but, but he was the fourth. And this, this is a fascinating story. He is a foreshadowing of the abomination of desolation. Now, Remember, the abomination of desolation, as we understand it, the one that is to come is going to be when the Antichrist walks into that temple, we saw that in 2 Thessalonians, and proclaims himself to be God, okay? And I think that's going to take place, if I understand Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27 correctly, it's going to take place right in the middle, or thereabouts, in, that, in the tribulation period. That's going, to, that's, going to, that's going to set off all hell breaking loose on earth. That's when all kinds of cosmic activity is going to take place. That's when the Antichrist is going to have his proverbial uh, heyday. If you, if, but there was a foreshadowing of him. Prediction again, prediction, Daniel chapter 9. The foreshadowing, Daniel 11, and this personage who really lived, I mean, history records him, secular history records him, Antiochus Epiphanes. Here's, this is interesting. So this guy had to get to Egypt, which he had defeated earlier. He had to go through Israel, from Syria, through Israel, down into Egypt. So he came back in 168 BC to put another pummeling onto Egypt. The only problem is there was another... Um, uh, nation, world empire that was just beginning to rise, hadn't reached its prominence and wouldn't reach its prominence for, you know, for several more years, otherwise known as Rome. When Epiphanes, made, Antiochus, made his way to Egypt that second time, he was stopped by a representative, basically an ambassador, uh, who's by the name of uh, Papaleus. Papaleus uh, stopped him. And this is, by the way, this is interesting for you trivialites. Have you ever heard the expression, I'm going to draw a line in the sand? This is where that expression comes from, drawing a line in the sand. So apparently, as uh, the, the uh, history has it, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes did not pummel Egypt a second time because they were being protected by this up-and-coming empire, Rome. Papaleus, who is this ambassador to Rome, meets Antiochus Epiphanes and literally draws a circle around him. <laughs> draws a circle around him. And he says, here's the deal. Uh, you're not going to attack uh, Egypt, and you, you got to make a decision to turn back and go home. And apparently, uh, uh, Antiochus said, well, let me think about it. <laughs> it's either at that time or just around that time, that's when this circle was drawn around him. And, and that's when uh, Papaleus said, you... if." If you cross this circle, you'll be, you will meet the forces of Rome. Uh, you need to decide before you leave the circle. So completely humiliated, Antiochus agreed not to attack Egypt and tucked tail and went back. Now, now he's in Egypt and he's going back. This is right outside of Alexandria, Egypt. He goes back up and he's got to go back through Israel and he is torqued. He's ticked. He's spitting nails. He's really mad. He's got to take out his anger on somebody, so he takes it out on the Jews. Goes into Jerusalem, begins to wipe out Jews. Thousands and thousands of Jews are killed. And not only that, but he, he, he sets up all kinds of anti-Jewish uh, laws, which I won't get into all those, like you couldn't get circumcised and things like that. 
but the thing that was known most, the most heinous, the most abominable, literally abominable thing that he did was he took a pig. Anybody knows anything about Jews? Pigs are unclean. They don't eat pork. He took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar in Jerusalem and then made priests and others eat it. It was just just as you couldn't get more human. I mean, he gets a little humiliation down in Egypt and he makes a big humiliation up in Israel, killing people right, left, and center. It was a horrible, horrible thing and uh, on his way uh, back home. That was well known to every Jew who despised him with every fiber of their being. And it would be it would be the thing that would call that would cause the Maccabean revolt. Maybe some of you have heard of first or second Maccabees. Uh, yeah, that's a, those are non-inspired books uh, found between the Testaments. Uh, good histories, but sec, especially Second Maccabees of this particular revolt, where they head down and they go to uh, you know they they end up uh, uh, down in on on, on Masada. Uh, the mountain in the in the desert, which was uh, built by Herod the Great, and that's where they would end up dying. But the bottom line is, that was the original abomination of desolation. Okay, so when Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation in Matthew twenty-four, that's what they would have been thinking about. Now, Paul later writes to the Thessalonians, and he says, "This is what it's going to look like. This Antichrist, who's going to rise up during the first half of the tribulation, is going to make himself really known." in the very, toward the very end. So what is his actual future? Well, we're told uh, toward the end, during the second half, according to Revelation chapter 13, he is going to be, he's gonna cause everybody to receive some kind of mark, forehand, forehead. Uh, we are well set up for that today. I don't know how that would happen. Uh, you can't buy or sell unless you receive his mark. It's gonna happen, it's gonna come. Uh, and, uh, and when that happens, uh, if you don't do it, you die. You, you don't make it. Uh, he's going to have a helper, the beast. You literally have a false trinity in the Old Testament. You've got Satan, you've got the Antichrist, and you've got the, you've got the false prophet who serves like the Holy Spirit. He's doing miracles, calling fire down from heaven. People are going to be worshiping this Antichrist as Messiah. Uh, and so... Uh, when does his day come? It comes at the very end. The day of the Antichrist comes to an end. In Revelation chapter 19, it's certainly worth reading, and I will do that now, where we're told at the very end uh, of the tribulation, I saw heaven open, verse 11, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, a white horse, a war horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His head are, uh, his, on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is, remember John, who wrote the Revelation, also wrote John in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. His name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven, arrayed in, in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. I happen to think I'm on one of those horses. I'm just telling you that right now. And if you know Jesus, I think you will be too. We're going to be following our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords. 
which we're told earlier, those who follow him are, are called, they're chosen, they're faithful. Verse 15, from his mouth, that is from our king's mouth, comes a sharp sword uh, with which no, uh, I'm sorry, which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, loud voice, he called the birds that were flying over, gather, have a great supper, he says. In verse 19, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. Get the picture. Jesus is coming back at the end of the seven-year tribulation. All hell's been breaking loose on earth. There's war. The battle of Armageddon is, is going on. Everybody's get, Nobody's going to live unless Jesus puts a stop to it, and that's what he does. He comes on his, on his war horse. We're following him, and, he, and opposing him is the beast who is the Antichrist, the false prophet, they all oppose him, thinking they, I mean, talk about insanity. Well, the scripture goes on to say, and the beast was captured, verse 20, and with it the false prophet, who is in his presence, and did the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. These two were thrown, watch this, alive into the lake of fire that burned with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came out of the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds gorged on all their flesh. Pretty gruesome scene. But you notice I read all of that just to get to that point. The Antichrist is going to survive all the way through to the end of the tribulation. Until Jesus himself comes back, puts a smack down on him, and puts him in the newly formed lake of fire. You say, wow, I mean, is he just burn up there? No, because the next scene is, it says in chapter 20, in verse 11, uh, John sees this vision. He says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And, uh, and then I saw the dead who were small and great because God's not a respecter of persons. Everybody who didn't know him are standing before him, standing before God. And it says the books were opened and another book, which is the book of life. This is powerful stuff here. And the dead were judged according to what was written in the books. The dead gave up the sea that were in them. They were judged each one according to what they had done. Death and hell and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, and the, which is the second death. And everyone's name, and, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of of fire. The lake of fire is that is where it said that's where the beast and the and the false prophet already were, the text says. In other words, a thousand, this is this is after I, I, I meant to tell you that between the time that Jesus comes back and puts them in the lake of fire and this final scene of this final judgment of the final day of the earth before its final reckoning and complete meltdown and the recreation of the new heaven and new earth will be a thousand years when Jesus reigns on his throne. And we're not here to, because we're not talking about the day of Jesus on his throne. We're talking about the day of the Antichrist because it's coming and so is his demise. Some of you are probably saying, well, that's all really interesting. Uh, I'm not really sure about the practicality of it all, but the Bible does tell us that prophecy has a lot of practical aspects to it, not the least of which is causing us to fear, 
causing, causing us to be alert, causing us to look for Jesus, causing us to live a holy life, according to 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And, and then Peter says this. I think this is probably a good place to end here uh, in this particular podcast. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter writes this. He says, uh, you know, one day is to God like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. To God, time, time, God is timeless. He invented time. But he is, God is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if that's you, dear listener, dear watcher, and you haven't come to repentance and faith in Jesus, the coming day and the day of the Antichrist is motivation enough to look to the cross, look to the one who loved you, who really loved you and loves you and died and rose again for you. And remember that and trust him as your savior. But then he says, that day will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. That's coming, the, the big meltdown I alluded to. And then this, and this is where we conclude. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and speeding up, is what the Greek says, the coming of the day of God? I don't know what that means. I mean, I know what it means. Is that to say that if we live godly lives, we'll, we'll speed up the return of Jesus? Kind of sounds like it. Now, don't get me wrong. God knows that day. He's the sovereign God. But somehow or another in his sovereignty, he includes things like our prayers, our obedience, our witnessing. He knows everybody that's going to come to know Jesus that's watching this. And he knows those of you who will refuse the gospel. He knows it all. He knows your end. He knows the beginning to the end. But somehow, in the mystery of it all, he uses puny people like me and many of you watching to lead others to him because that's what we're trying to do. Because believe me, Jesus is coming again, and so is the day of the Antichrist.